0: I invite you to turn back with me to First Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2. And I'm going to take for my text this morning verses 13 through 15. First Timothy 2 verses 13 through 15. These are the words of God. For Adam was first formed... Then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, in charity and holiness with sobriety. Now those of you who know me and know this church, you know that I very rarely tailor my message to accommodate a secular holiday, uh, such as Mother's Day. And so you might be wondering, well, what gives now? Why not continue right on in 1 Corinthians? And uh, I, I primarily have two reasons for that. Number one, because this is a day that cannot be celebrated without presupposing a distinctly Christian and biblical view of the created order. In order for you to celebrate Mother's Day, you must presuppose that only a certain group of individuals can be mothers. And that there is an intrinsic glory to motherhood that's worth celebrating. A notion that's very controversial in our day. And secondly, this is a day in honor of something that is the object of a relentless attack by those who hate God and hate his word. And so I not only found it convenient, but I found it fitting and helpful and edifying to preach a special message today that will accommodate the holiday that we celebrate in our culture of Mother's Day. Our ungodly culture has waged an all-out war against the institution of the family and motherhood specifically. There are eight times more children born out of wedlock today than there were 50 years ago. The average age of motherhood is consistently going up, but the average number of children in a family is consistently going down. The mission of our culture is to liberate women from the oppressive bondage of marriage and motherhood so that they can fulfill their dreams and pursue their careers. And when raising children gets in the way of that, uh, they are often shipped off to a daycare for 40 plus hours a week, or they are conveniently yet barbarically murdered in the womb and sacrificed on the altars of pleasure, convenience, time, and money. This has been the fate of untold millions of children in the past half century. The numbers that you'll read will say something in the tune of 60 to 70 million, but that only accounts for surgical abortions, and that only accounts for surgical abortions performed in states that keep a record. New York and California, which are probably the two largest states that perform abortions, uh, don't even record the numbers. And it doesn't account for the untold millions of children that are murdered through a pill or through some sort of over-the-counter medication that can be purchased right here in our city at any pharmacy or drugstore. But despite the onslaught of this wicked culture against the family and against motherhood, God's design and principles for motherhood have not changed in the Word of God, what we find is that there is a unique glory and a unique virtue that is ascribed to mothers. So my aim this morning in preaching this text is simple. I want to defend and uphold the God-ordained beauty of motherhood. And it is a beautiful thing. It's not something to be despised. It's not something to look look to as a as a a mere necessity of procreation. It's not something to look to as an encumbrance or an inconvenience that keeps you from doing something far greater. No, it's a beautiful thing, a glorious calling. Secondly, because this is preaching, I want to proclaim the magnificent promise of this text, which is also the title of my sermon, and that is Gospel Hope for Mothers. That's what this verse, this passage, contains. It contains a gospel hope from others. But there's three things I I want to show you from this text. And the first is this. I want you to see the context in verses 13 and 14. Now, the thrust of my message, and really what I want to take you to, is Paul's very fascinating statement in verse 15. that, That verse really is a verse that you all have read in your Bible reading. And you've read it, and every time you've read it, you've said, hmm, I don't really know what that means, but it's in there, so I'll figure it out someday. Well, that's how I always read it, and then I thought, I need to figure this out. And then when I figured it out, I realized it's wonderful. So I want to preach it to you today. But in order to preach verse 15 to you today, in context, I need to show you what Paul's doing in this section. I need to unpack this passage and show you the general and immediate context of it. Well, in 1 Timothy 2... Paul is speaking about proper behavior in the church. That's the the general context. Verses 1 through 7, he gives directions about prayers. Verses uh, 8, he gives direction about who is to lead in prayer. Verses 9 and 11, he gives directions about women's dress. That's something that just makes our culture jump up and shout. In verses 11 through 12, he gives directions about women's roles in the church. And he basically tells us two things. He says, uh, look, at, look at verses 12 and 13. He says, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over a man. What is he saying there? He says she's not to be a teacher in the church, and she's not to rule in the church. In other words, what Paul is simply saying is that she's not to be a pastor, because that's the, that's the responsibilities and work of a pastor, to teach and to rule. And he says, no, that's not a woman's role. Uh, then in verses 13 and 14, he gives the theological basis for these roles in the church. And there are essentially two pillars that form this theological understanding of, of a woman's role in the church. And here they are. Number one is the order of creation. Look at verse 13. He says, for Adam was first formed, then Eve. When God created man and woman, he first created man out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed life into his nostrils. Therefore, as 1 Corinthians 11 will say, uh, that, 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 he, that the glory of man is God. But then he created woman out of man. That's why we have the, the word woman, out of man he created woman. And so the glory of the man is woman. And then uh, we get to our verses 14 and 15, where Paul will include a kind of a, a balancing consolation. And we'll see that in a moment. But I, I want you to understand that this text is not nearly as hard to understand as it is to swallow. Uh, God ordained these things to be so, and he gave these directions without asking our advice. And and anytime you you go, especially in our day, anytime you go to a text like this and preach from a text like this, you're no doubt going to stir up controversy and different opinions and different feelings. Uh, But I just want to say to you at the outset, I'm just the messenger. I didn't write 1 Timothy 2. God didn't ask me what I thought. He didn't need my good ideas. He, he wrote this. And by the way, he didn't just write this in our American culture, uh, but he wrote this over 2,000 years ago, almost 2,000 years ago. And, and he, he gave general principles that were to abide in the church throughout all the ages. It is not our prerogative to sit in judgment of the Word of God and choose which parts we want to believe. Uh, It's actually a, a far greater danger to do that than it is to just reject it all altogether. It is far easier to deal with someone who says, I just reject the Bible completely than it is to deal with someone who wants to claim that they follow the Word of God, but what they really mean is they only follow the parts that they like and then the parts they don't like, they twist to mean something that God never intended them to mean. Well, we can't do that with this text and this passage. It is our obligation to learn from Scripture as God gave it and to obey it in its entirety. And so, when our culture rejects God's design for men and women in general and motherhood specifically, they miss the beauty of God's good creation. God ordained all things and He created men and women and He pronounced it good. The way God created us to be, the way God created a man to be and created a woman to be, is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But when we reject God's creation in favor of some postmodern humanistic understanding of gender and motherhood and fatherhood and marriage and sexuality, when we reject the way God ordained it to be, we lose the beauty. And it just devolves into this chaotically disgusting culture that we find ourselves in today. The context of this passage is so important because it is only upon it and after it that God gives the promise of gospel hope in verse 15. So on this Mother's Day, let me just begin by exhorting you to embrace who God created you to be. Embrace it. Embrace who God created you to be. Yes, men, but women, embrace who God created you to be as wives, as mothers, as nurturers, as life-givers and reject all unbiblical and anti-Christian distortions that seek to rob you of your God-given feminine glory and the blessings that are yours in Christ alone. Amen? Amen. Amen? The context of this passage is that God has given distinct roles to men and women according to their distinct design. See, here's, how, here's, here's what's happened uh, in our culture in the last, say, 25, 30, 40 years. At first, the attack was on the rolls. That's where the attack was first. You know, you had Rosie the Riveter. The problem was, after the war ended, she didn't go home. And uh, what you had was just an attack on the rolls. And you had people that said, well, men can do anything women can do. Women can do anything men can do. And that just became the accepted norm. We have lost, essentially, we have lost that battle. But where's the attack today? It's gone past just an attack upon the roles, And they're attacking the very design of men and women as made in the image of God. So if we want to partake of gospel blessings, we must receive Christ not only as our Savior, but also as our Lord and Creator, who He created us to be. And we must reject, see, they're selling you a bill of goods that they cannot supply. This whole idea of liberation, what the world calls liberation, is actually bondage. True liberty is in Christ alone as we follow His Word. The Bible says, If the Son shall make you free you shall be free indeed. That's the context of this passage, and I want you to keep that in mind as we now get to our verses. And the second thing I want you to see in this text is I want you to see the curse. I have the context, and we have the curse. See, part of what it means to receive Christ as our creator is realizing and confessing that we have miserably fallen from the state in which he created us. In other words, before we can ever understand and receive the good news, we need to understand the bad news. Fallen sinners are the only kind of people that have any use for the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you believe the world's lie that man is basically good, then you really have no need for the gospel of redemption and grace. So when we talk about accepting God's created order... How did he create us? Well, he created us in the garden with an untested holiness, and we had natural communion with God there in the garden before the fall. The, the problem is many, some even uh, will, who will claim Christianity, uh, will totally reject the reality that, that that wasn't the way that we remained. In fact, it didn't take us very long at all after being created to fall from the state of our creation. Mankind, by willful transgression, fell into sin, and that fall, that fall had a radical effect on our, our entire being and the totality of who we are. That really, if you, if you want to get philosophical, the, the, the reality of the fall is really at the essence and at the heart of Reformed theology. Uh, because, you, you see, the, the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church and the doctrine of Pelagianism and Arminianism teaches that man is basically good. And that man has the natural capacity to perform the good works necessary to merit his salvation. Is that not the theology of our culture? You're a good person. And as long as you do good things and you, you, you try to be nice and you try to be kind, then at the very end it'll all work out well for you. That's, that's been the lie from the very beginning. But it, it was the, the it's not really even reform theology. It's just biblical theology. People that really believe the Bible, they've said, no, no, the Bible is so clear. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none good, no, not one. Our works will never merit our salvation. We will never earn uh, an acceptable standing before God. We've sinned, we've fallen. Well, the world doesn't like to hear that. We don't want to hear a message about sin and the curse I want to hear a message that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and He just wants you to be happy and holy, or happy and and, and healthy and prosperity and, and on down the line. But you say, "Well, well, why do we emphasize the fall? Why do we emphasize sin? Why do we make so much of it? Because if you don't understand sin and the way that it's affected us as human beings, as men and women." You'll never understand just how glorious the gospel is. Right. The gospel is not just some message that gives you a little bit of motivation to help you out on your way. You know, it's not, well, I'm trying really hard and I'm pulling myself up by the bootstraps and God just pushed me across the finish line. It's not the gospel. Mm. The gospel is that you, you were ruined by the fall, yeah. you were condemned. That you are dead in trespasses and sins. And the gospel says that the Lord Jesus Christ interposed himself in this world and lived a sinless life and died on a cross. Not just to, to give you a little help along the way, but to breathe new life in you. And all that you are and all that you have and everything good about you now comes from him. Amen. Because everything good that you had in the garden, you lost. Amen. So... Let's look at the curse. And when I say the curse, what I mean is I want us to, to really hone in on the effects of the fall as they pertain specifically to men and women. Notice in verse 14 of First Timothy 2, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Well, perhaps not quite as confusing as verse 15, but this verse is still a bit puzzling. There's two questions, really, that we have to answer to make sense of verse 14. Number one, what does it mean that Adam was not deceived? What do you mean, Paul, that he was not deceived? And secondly, what specific deception caused the woman to sin? And when we answer these questions, we will understand why the effects of the curse were what they were. So, hold your place in 1 Timothy 2 and turn back all the way to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. As with many difficult passages, when I am trying to make sense of them, and I'm in my time of preparation, I turn to my two Johns. And my son John is not one of them. Um, he, he's, he's, he's quite a joy to have around, but so far he hasn't quite given me any profound exegetical insights yet in my studies. But I turn to my two Johns, Gil, and Calvin. (laughs) Those are my two Johns, and they live on my desk, and uh, they're great friends. They're always there when I need them. But unfortunately, though they're almost always very helpful, when it comes to 1 Timothy 2 and verse 14, they are in complete disagreement, and all I have are their statements. Unfortunately, they're unavailable for follow-up questions. So I wasn't able to get any more information than what I already have from them. And I'm reading them, and they're saying totally different things about 1 Timothy 2 and verse 14 on this question of what does it mean that Adam was not deceived? Well, my John Gill says that that verse means that Adam was not deceived in any way. That he partook of the fruit in full cognizant knowledge of what he was doing, and he ate primarily to please his wife. That's what Gill says. Well, Calvin says that verse 14 does not mean that Adam was not subject to the same satanic deceptions. Okay, so Calvin says, no, Adam was still prone to Satan's deceptions, but rather Paul words it this way to emphasize the fact that the source of the transgression proceeded from the woman. See how those are two different things, right? Well, what do I do when my two Johns disagree? Well, it gives me some more hard work to do. And so I did that hard work and spent a while doing that hard work. And let me present to you my findings from that hard work. There's two pieces of biblical evidence that led me to a decision. Number one, in the New Testament, Christ, as the last Adam, had to endure the temptations of the devil... Because in order to redeem his people, he had to succeed where the first Adam failed. Now that's a very important piece of evidence. Especially if you have a proper hermeneutic in which you allow the New Testament to interpret the Old Testament. And you understand that Christ is referred to several times as the last man or the, the second Adam. right? And so what he did in his earthly ministry was fulfilling the covenant of works in our place, the same covenant that Adam was under and he failed, Christ endured the temptations of Satan and overcame them, which leads us to infer, but I think in a minute I'll show you why we can do more than just infer it, that Adam underwent those same satanic temptations and faced the same devilish deception. But secondly, I had you turn to Genesis 3, look at verse 6 of Genesis 3. Notice, Just verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. Now notice this. And gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now in this account of the fall, what we find is that there's no chronological division. What do I mean by that? I mean that the man... And the woman, Adam and Eve, are together when Satan comes and begins to tempt Eve. Meaning that Adam was present for those temptations. And while Satan is putting forth his deceptions, Eve takes of the fruit and Adam immediately afterwards partakes of the fruit. It wasn't that Adam was off somewhere and Eve had to go find him. No, he was right there. she, she, She did not have to do any work of convincing him or persuading him. No, he partook. And our text gives us good reason to say that he partook for the same reason she partook in a lot of ways. So, in this disagreement between my two beloved Johns, the testimony of Scripture compels me on this one to side with Calvin. Uh, It's not that Adam was not deceived in any way, but it's rather that in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 14, Paul is stressing the fact, and we'll see this when we get to verse 15, why this is so important, that the the source of the transgression proceeded from the woman. But now this raises a question. Well, if Eve sinned first, then why does the Bible consistently lay the guilt of sin upon Adam? Right? Romans 5 says what? For by one man... Sin entered into the world, and death by sin. So the death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So, Eve sinned first, right? Yes, she did. Well, then why is it Adam that receives the guilt and the condemnation? And ultimately, it's not Eve's sin that's imputed to us. It's Adam's sin that's imputed to us. Well, I really don't think this question is all that hard to solve. The reason why Adam is the one responsible for the guilt of sin is because as Paul is reaffirming in First Timothy 2, it was the man that God created first. It was the man that God entered into covenant with. It was the man that God gave headship over, the woman. And it was the man that served as a representative of his people. So even though Eve sinned first, Adam bore the ultimate responsibility for the fall because with headship comes responsibility. And it is also this truth that reveals the specific nature of Eve's deception. What was it? What was the, the, the specific deception that caused Eve to eat of the fruit? You say, well, she was deceived into taking the fruit. Well, that's true, but her deception was more fundamental than that. Her deception, this, this is really going to, I hope, connect a lot of the dots for you in this passage. Her deception caused her to reject God's created, order, and rebel against the headship of Adam. She didn't yield to his leadership. Rather, she took it upon herself to eat, and then she gave it to her husband. She was the leader in that situation. At least she assumed the practical role of leadership in that situation adam on the other hand neglected his responsibility as the nurturer and protector of his wife and instead joined in her sin and they both together usurped the authority of god and that's that's what happens by the way when we reject god's created order what are we really rejecting we're rejecting his authority over us as our lord We're saying, no, God, we're not going to obey you. We're not going to obey what you have said about how you created us. We are going to become gods of ourselves. That was exactly what Satan said to them. Don't you know that this fruit will make you as God? The original sin that led to mankind's fall involved, I don't think it was all of it, but it involved a blatant rejection of who God made them to be as man and woman. And here we are on Mother's Day, thousands of years later, and lost men and women are still being deceived by Satan to commit the same exact sin. But when they do, they are following a path that always and only leads to death, destruction, and condemnation. When men neglect their duties to care for, love, cherish, and protect their wife and their children, they're rejecting God's design for who He's created them to be. When women despise the gift of motherhood, neglect their children, or worse, murder them in the womb, they are rejecting God's design for who He made them to be. When those given over to a debased mind deny the biblical truth that there are only two genders, they're rejecting what God has said about how he's made them to be. And when anyone makes the insane claim that anyone except a biological woman can be a mother, they're rejecting God's design of who he made them to be. They are following in the same sin as Adam and Eve by rejecting who God has made them to be. Well, this sin comes with a terrible curse that has specific effects on men and women, respectively. You're still there in Genesis 3. Look at verses 16 through 19. And I want you to see how God has cursed all of humanity, but the effects of the curse specifically affect men differently than they affect women. Notice 3, 16, Genesis 3 and verse 16. He speaks to them individually as well. He says, unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. The woman was cursed in two two specific ways. What were they? Number one, And and both of them are at the fabric of who she is as a woman. Number one, she was cursed in her God-given ability, which, by the way, is only given to women. I'm going to just re-emphasize that point in 2023. She's cursed in her God-given ability to bring forth children. I don't think I have to explain the details of that curse to the women that are here today. The pain that is involved, the sorrow that is involved... I believe it's also true, not just in the, the physical act of, uh, of, uh, of giving birth, but in the pains and the sorrows that come with raising children. But also she's cursed in her marital relationship. Notice he says, And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Uh, see, a lot of, a lot of people who, who take a liberal interpretation of Scripture will say, See here, Uh, male headship is a result of the fall. The problem with that is God had already given Adam headship way before the fall ever happened. Here's what this verse is saying. What this verse is saying is that before the fall, before entered into the world, married people, imagine this for a second, uh, there was a harmonious relationship, a perpetually harmonious relationship in marriage. There was no, no such thing as an abusive husband who neglected his duties who mistreated his wife, who ruled his house with an iron fist and didn't have grace toward his wife. There was was no such thing as that. And there was no such thing as a rebellious wife who revolted against her husband's leadership. Before the fall, this harmonious relationship of headship and submission existed without sin. Well, brothers and sisters, we'll never see a marriage like that again until our Lord Jesus Christ receives us as his bride in glory. And so that's the curse here for women. But Adam has his curse too because he neglected his responsibility as a nurturer and as a protector. Notice in verse 17, and unto Adam he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife. He's neglecting his responsibility, abdicating his headship. That's a sermon in and of itself, by the way, brothers. Brothers. hearkened unto her voice and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee saying thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake and in sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee and thou shalt eat the herb of the field in the sweat of thy face. Thou shalt eat bread till thou return unto the ground for out of it thou wast taken from dust thou art and unto dust thou shalt return. Before the fall did Adam work? Absolutely. He cultivated the garden. That work was not arduous and toilsome. We can't even fathom that kind of work today. So you see, the curse of sin has specific effects on men and women. And brothers and sisters, we must understand that sin has a price. The chaos, dysfunction, and evil that characterizes our world today You say, why are there people that think that there's 31 genders with more on the way? Why are there people that advocate for their so-called right to murder a child in the womb? Why are there people that reject uh, God's design for marriage? One word. Sin. Sin. It's blinded us. It's distorted our thinking. And it's caused us to rebel against God and who He's created us to be. But... Turn back now to 1 Timothy 2, because Paul does not leave us in this miserable reality. I think one of the reasons, now certainly I am uh, an advocate, and I think that we should, perhaps I should, more than I do, preach on things such as this, because they are so prevalent in our society. But I think one of the reasons why uh, there's such an adverse attitude towards this type of preaching is because many preachers fail to to go on to the gospel of hope and grace it's really easy to get in the pulpit and just spend 40 minutes talking about how bad everything is and how distorted the world is and how corrupted the world is uh, but that's not preaching (laughs) that's just complaining and ranting no we can't stop there brothers and sisters we've seen the curse We've seen the evils of our society, but I want to now turn your attention to the consolation in verse 15. See, as Paul gives the theological basis for the role of women in the church, he tells us that the woman was in the transgression because she was first to sin. Verse 14 is really striking, and what we find here is that the first to give life was also the first to bring death. But having detailed the specific curse of the woman, he now pronounces a specific hope, specific hope. We find that in verse 15, and to explain it, I'm going to take it apart, word by word, phrase by phrase, and then put it back together so we can see the big picture, okay? Verse 15, hang with me, because uh, this definitely would be a fulfillment of what Peter said of Paul's writings, that our brother Paul has written some things which are hard to be understood, Okay, so he, he begins and he says, notwithstanding or nevertheless, and, and he uses this phrase to tell us that he's contrasting what he's just said in verse 14. Yes, the woman is in the transgression and under the curse, notwithstanding, there is hope for her. Okay, Paul was not saying, uh, in, <laughs> in other words, Paul is not repeating Adam. Remember what Adam said in the garden? when God came to him and said, what have you done? He said, well, the woman you gave me. Shifting the blame, shifting the responsibility. Paul's saying, yes, the woman was in the transgression, but just as there's hope for men, there is hope for women. And then he says this. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing. Well, no doubt, one of the more confusing phrases in the writings of the apostle paul what kind of salvation is he talking about what is meant by a reference to childbearing what does that have to do with this passage and what do these two things salvation and childbearing have to do with one another let me break it down and, and i'm going to begin with the preposition in saved in childbearing And I want to tell you that this is the same Greek word that is often translated as through. And I would suggest that that would be a more precise rendering of it here in our verse. What Paul is saying here, she shall be saved through childbearing. Okay. Well, that that still doesn't really solve very much, does it? Uh, Saved through childbearing, saved in childbearing, through is a little bit more accurate for us, but it still leaves us with several questions. Uh, well, what about the childbearing itself? Well, some argue that this is a reference to the birth of Christ. Uh, our Lord was born of a woman. The Virgin Mary gave birth, and certainly He is the Savior. And so there is a sense in which we could say that the act of childbearing had something to do with the salvation of sinners. However, this really is just a very unlikely interpretation of what Paul means here, to say that he is referencing the birth of Christ, mainly because if you look at verse 14 of chapter 5, notice what Paul says in verse 14 of chapter 5, I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, same word that he uses for childbearing in chapter 2. Guide the house. Give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. So it would be really hard contextually to interpret Paul in chapter two and verse fifteen as referring to anything other than the physical act of giving birth to children. He's not making a remote and obscure reference to the glorious incarnation of the Son of God. When Paul says "saved through childbearing," he means saved through. The act, the individual, personal act of giving birth. Well, clear as mud still? Yes, clear as mud still. We need to continue on in this exposition here. Okay, what kind of salvation are you talking about, Paul? And again, we have two options. If we say that this is talking about a physical or a temporal salvation, right? That she's saved from death, maybe saved from pain. If we say that then we deny the effects of the curse. Because in Genesis 3, in verse 16, God said the very opposite. You're going to have sorrow in conception. You're going to have pain in childbearing. You're not going to be saved in it. You're going to suffer in it. And if we make this a temporal salvation, then we rob the verse of its gospel blessings. The gospel is not here to save you temporally in this life. But, if we say that this verse is a reference to spiritual salvation, what's the problem? Well, then it appears that we're teaching some sort of salvation through works. That if a woman gives birth, she merits her salvation. Now, I've heard some pretty wacky doctrines that teach a salvation by works. I've met people that say you're saved through baptism. I've met people you're say you're saved through Church membership. I've met people that say you're saved through repeating a prayer or um, keeping a sacrament, but I don't think I've ever met anybody that's claimed that you're saved through childbearing. Well, the solution to this dilemma is understanding what it means in this context to be saved through something. To be saved through something. Let me just tell you at the outset. Spiritual, eternal salvation is what Paul means in this text. That is what he means. And physical childbirth is what he means by childbearing. So what does it mean to be saved through something? Well, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is really the interpretive key to our passage. 1 Corinthians 3, and I want you to pay special attention Attention to verse 15. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 15. A lot of verse 15s today. Notice what he says. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. King James says, yet so as, but it could also be translated, through, he shall be saved through... Fire. See where I'm heading with First Timothy two and verse fifteen? Paul in First Corinthians three is talking about our coming judgment or evaluation on the basis of our works. The individual in 1 Corinthians 3:15 is a saved man who's having his work evaluated. And the meaning of through or yet so as in 1 Corinthians 3 is is not by the means of. It's not saying that he's saved by the means of the fire, that the fire is what saves him. Rather, the interpretation is in spite of. Though his works will be burned up in the fire, yet he himself will be saved. Fire is not what causes salvation, it's what he endures in his salvation. Though he is under the threat of fire, the promise is that he will be saved. How does this help us to understand 1 Timothy 2 and verse 15? Because though the curse is a reality for women, and though childbearing often involves unimaginable pain and even death, the promise of the gospel is that mothers may be saved in spite of their physical agony because Christ has defeated the curse. This is gospel hope for women. Though you may, in your lifetime, experience the painful reminders of the fall, yet Christ has promised to redeem fallen sinners through his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, the medical advances of our day dull the intensity of the curse. Think with me. Imagine, if you will, the conditions of just 100, 150 years ago, which were the conditions for most of world history. No epidurals. No painkillers. No sutures. No episiotomies no antibiotics, many times no hospitals, no medical professionals, and oftentimes no recovery. An untold number of women died during childbirth. The Bible even records accounts of that. Genesis 35, the death of Rachel. She was hard in labor and she died in childbirth. Countless more women received pain and damage to their bodies that would never heal. They were left unable to have children again or experience a normal sexual life. For these women, there were aspects of childbearing that seemed like a curse from God because they were, and they are. How easy... It would have been. How easy it still might be for you, Mother, to feel that God is against you because of Eve's sin. How easy it might be to feel that God had forsaken them in their pain and in their suffering. That feeling is what Paul is responding to in verse 15. He's saying no to the curse. He's saying that in Christ, the, the worst that this curse can ever do to you is the power it has over your physical body, but your spirit is redeemed from this curse and safe in Christ. He's proclaiming gospel hope from others. But there is a condition to this promise. Look in verse Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2 and the end of verse 15. There is a condition. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing. She shall be redeemed from the curse. She shall uh, have her spiritual life secured in Jesus if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Now, uh, don't get uncomfortable. Don't be afraid by this language if they continue. Uh, Paul is not saying that her salvation depends on her ability to maintain it or or her ability to, to muster up some sort of character qualifications. No, this simply just means if she's a genuine Christian. He's saying that the same gospel that has the power to overcome the curse has the power to persevere her in good works. True believers are only those, by the way, who persevere unto the end. Uh, We believe in the security of the believer, not the security of the unbeliever. And we don't just believe in the preservation of the saints, we believe in the perseverance of the saints. But this condition does something else too, and, and I think that's why Paul includes it here. It broadens the scope to include the logical questions of, well, what about women that have never given birth what about mothers who have never experienced the pains of childbirth in their own bodies but they sense a solidarity with other women who have experienced it and can be saved if they continue in faith what about women who don't have children alive anymore what about women who have lost children in miscarriage by the way, that's a mother. Amen? It's a mother. And that's a result of the curse as well. Well, what does this verse have to say to those ladies? Notice the shift here from she to they. From she to they. Both of these words are feminine, but one is singular and one is plural. And, and really, this is what we would call in, in literature a synecdoche. Okay, so it's kind of like if I said uh, the American automobile was responsible for a million deaths last year, uh, you would not picture a giant Oldsmobile plowing down multitudes of people. You understand what I mean. I'm using a singular term, the American automobile, to refer to all American automobiles. Well, in the same way when Paul says, she shall be saved if they continue, he's not just referring to Eve, but he's referring to... All women who have both tasted the pains of childbirth and who have solidarity with those women that have. And he is saying, here's the gospel hope for mothers. Though Eve, though Eve partook of the fruit and entered into the transgression and damned her posterity and brought about the curse, and though Adam's guilt was then imputed to his posterity when he followed Eve in that sin and partook with her, the gospel says that if you place your trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be liberated from the curse, you will be saved from the condemnation of sin, and you will be delivered to live as a godly woman unto the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Gospel hope for mothers. Well... We've taken it apart. We've put it back together. Let me conclude with a few final applications here. For a woman to reject her God-assigned role is to place her soul in great danger. Modern feminism, insofar as it rejects the biblical teaching of womanhood, is a satanic poison that damns every soul that drinks of it. The world would have you believe that being a faithful wife who raises children is failing to live up to your potential. But the truth is that no career in the world nor any other endeavor would ever compare to the honor and glory of being the mother of a little image bearer of God. Mm -hmm. Now let me tell you what I didn't say. I didn't say that this verse means that women can't have careers or can't work outside of the home. But it means that no career that you'll ever have will compare with the glory and the calling of God to be the mother of your children. So, and I understand that we have mothers on all sides of the spectrum, I hope you understand what your priorities are to be according to God. And if you have to choose between secular career and raising image bearers that God has entrusted to me, make the godly choice and reject this modern culture that would want to sell you nothing but lies. The subtle pressure on you ladies to conform to this worldly philosophy is abundant. It is everywhere you look. It is embedded in every TV show, in every commercial. Uh, It is embedded everywhere in society, in all of our entertainment, in all of our philosophy. And I'm pleading with you not to believe these lies and to saturate yourself with what the Bible says about your glory as a woman so that you will be able to reject them when you see them. God has given you a unique blessing that he gives to no one else. In fact, why does Paul mention motherhood in verse 15? Do you see the contrast? In verse 12 and 13, he tells a woman what she can't do, which is, to serve as a pastor in the church, but in verse 15 he tells us what a man can't do and that is be a mother. But I also want to give this warning. The promise of the gospel hope for mothers is conditioned on an if statement. Merely being a mother does not guarantee your salvation. And it is easy especially for Christian women, to rest their assurance on their works. You raise godly children. You take them to church. You homeschool. Surely, you must be a Christian. Uh, Do not rest your assurance or your confidence in your works. Examine yourself in light of this text. Faith, charity, Holiness, sobriety, does that characterize you as a woman? The interesting thing about these qualities is that they are all places where Eve failed. Faith, she didn't have any to believe God. Charity, she didn't have any for Adam and their posterity. Holiness, she had no holiness to obey the commandment. She had no sobriety or self-control to refrain from temptation When God truly saves you, he will transform you into a woman who possesses these qualities and you will have a faith that works by love and shows itself in holiness and sobriety and perseveres in the heart unto the end. This is how God transforms and fashions godly women. But let me give a final word to the men. Isn't it always interesting, you know, on on Mother's Day, you're expected to preach this really encouraging message that just, encourages and uplifts the women. But then Father's Day is like punching bag for Dad's Day, right? And you preach this message on how you men need to get in line. And you... Let me give a final word to the men. And I'm not going to do that, by the way. Proverbs 31 and verse 28 says this, Her children arise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praiseth her. God has given our church some wonderful mothers. And God has given you men some wonderful mothers to have as wives. I should have heard at least three amens. Show your love for her by praising her, by treasuring her, by valuing her. I'm thankful that my wife is the mother of our children. I could never be. And encourage her to embrace who God has made her to be. Do you know how you embrace your wife to, or encourage your wife to embrace her femininity by embracing your masculinity? Be a strong, dependable leader. Be a gracious and kind husband who can lead your wife in the things of God. Who can read Scripture with her and pray with her and encourage her to be the woman that God has made her to be let me close with this final exhortation from Calvin. If he wrote this nearly 500 years ago, how much more do we need this today? Listen to what he said, Whatever hypocrites or wise men of the world may think of it, when a woman, considering to what she has been called, submits to the condition which God has assigned her and does not refuse to endure the pains or rather the fearful anguish of parturition or anxiety, about her offspring, or anything else that belongs to her duty, God values this obedience more highly than if in some other manner she made a great display of heroic virtues while she refused to obey the calling of God. What does Calvin mean there? If you are a woman who has placed your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you say, my greatest desire, my life's ambition, my, my, the legacy that I want to leave is I want to be a godly wife and a godly mother who loves her husband and loves her children. Nothing you could do would please God more. Embrace your femininity. Embrace your calling as a woman. Embrace your callings as a mother. And trust the hope of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your word and for what you have to say to us in all different capacities of our existence. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage the mothers of this church and of our society to turn away from uh, the lies of Satan that would have them neglect and and despise who you created them to be, but rather to rejoice in their God-given faculties as women and as mothers. And help us men, O Lord, to have a deeper appreciation and value for the women and the mothers that you've placed in our lives. May the gospel of Christ encourage us. May you make this church a place where families are able to grow in the grace of God and where children are able to be ministered to in nurture and admonition of the Lord. Oh God, save our families, build them, strengthen them, and help us to rejoice in you alone. Thank you for your gospel in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.